0: With Daniel Minnick. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look. Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Or maybe this familiar theme music by composer John Williams, who also created the Star Wars theme. And so the original theme, the original intro for Superman goes with the radio shows of the 1940s in some form and the adventures of Superman in the 1950s as a television show. And although Superman has evolved over the years into quite the superhero, quite the character, and special effects have blessed us with movies and series of TV shows that can wow us and make it look more believable that an actor can don a suit And play this role as Superman and it looks a lot on the screen like he has great strength and can fly and can shoot red beams out of his eyes that burn things and he can move fast and he can blow air out and freeze things or blow people away literally yes indeed Superman is cool. Who doesn't like Superman, except for people who would prefer their superheroes to be a little more human and a little less invincible, as we might think? For some people, Superman is just a little too full-blown, has too many superpowers, is too indestructible, and the only challenges are from other alien creatures out there who happen to come to Earth and give Superman a run for his money, or supervillains like Lex Luthor who have to have incredible brains and mind over muscle, as Lex Luthor would tell Superman. So some people prefer superheroes to be a little more human- Maybe down to Spider-Man level or Captain America level and have the ability to bleed if you hit him at least a little bit hard enough that maybe a human being could actually stand a chance if they catch him off guard. Something like that. But, you know, when I was a kid, it seemed that we didn't have the exciting array of superheroes that we have today with all the movies coming out, all the Marvel movies and the DC movies. And, you know, when I was a kid, people probably would have laughed if they had made a movie devoted to Aquaman (laughs) or some lesser known superhero like that. Basically, it was like Superman and Batman when I was a kid. And then, yeah, you knew there was Spider-Man and x-men and stuff like that but they were for the comic book enthusiasts you know everything was superman if you want all the cool superpowers or batman if you wanted a guy who trained really hard and had all these cool gadgets to be able to help him fight the bad guys but this episode is not just to be some cultural comic book fantasy discussing the merits or demerits or fandom of Superman. This episode is about Jesus and particularly who is Jesus. So in this episode, I am starting a series on identifying who Jesus Christ is. And I really hope that looking at a bunch of our favorite and maybe not-so-favorite superheroes will make it a little bit easier to understand some of the questions surrounding the identity of Jesus Christ. Really, just like the cat in the hat in the old 1960s cartoon movie said, to find the missing something, we should find out where it's not. Well, in this case, in order to identify what Jesus Christ is like, we should start by identifying what he is not like. And so we're going to examine a bunch of superheroes and we're going to ask the question with each one of them, is Jesus like this superhero? Because Christian orthodoxy regards Jesus Christ as something very special. That this Messiah was not just a human king. That there was something very special about him. Something that made him above the average human being or even the best that humanity has to offer. That Jesus, in his identity was beyond and far beyond anything that the human race as it is has to offer or to ascribe to him. And so for this episode, we're going to ask the question, Is Jesus like Superman? Well, who is Superman? If Jesus is like Superman, then we have to ask the question, who is Superman? What is Superman like? According to the comic books and the movies. Well, as we heard in that first introduction, the old one, Superman is faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound or jump and and then look up in the sky... It's a bird, it's a plane. In other words, Superman could also fly through the air. So, could Jesus do that? Well, I hope that we can answer those questions, or rather I would let you ask and answer those questions. Because you might be ready to say yes or no, but I'll leave that particularly in your own mind, because we really want to look into the scriptures. And for superhero aficionados, we really want to think of Jesus as our superhero. You know, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my boyfriend. Jesus is my, yes, savior. But is Jesus our savior in a way that Superman would be a savior? Sure, we would love to think of Jesus as a superhero because superheroes are just cool. They're awesome. You know, it's like we'd like to learn about Jesus by reading cool comic books and not having to dig through words on a page in the Bible and... You know, learn about doctrine. And, you know, I'm sure some of the disciples, especially as they witnessed Jesus do some pretty amazing things, as we see in John chapter 6, a lot of people crossed the Sea of Galilee to meet Jesus because he did something amazing. He took some bread and he broke it and fed a bunch of people with that. And so they came to see some more amazing things. And then Jesus started to tell them things. He started to, teach them things he had something to say to them that wasn't quite as entertaining and amazing and that kind of turned some people off but is jesus like superman at least even in a very remote sense like if we just stretch our brains and stretch the words of scriptures on the page and see the narratives could we somehow compare jesus to superman Well, let's see. Like Superman, Jesus could do some amazing, rather superhuman deeds. Jesus never did demonstrate extraordinary strength like Samson did or Superman, but he did calm a storm with his words. Unlike Superman, Jesus never zapped anything with heat vision, but he did heal people and raise others from the dead. Unlike Superman, Jesus never used x-ray vision, although he did know people's thoughts, as we see in Matthew 9, 4 and Luke 11, 17. Unlike Superman, Jesus never flew through the sky like a bird or a plane, but he did walk on water and ascend to heaven. So, we can make some very stretched, remote comparisons of Jesus to Superman. But, you know, it is kind of stretching the limits with language, isn't it? So, like Superman, Jesus did things that ordinary human beings without powers from outer space or powers from on high could do. But now... How much is Jesus really like Superman, other than stretching the limits of language? First, let's ask the questions about who Superman is. Is Superman human? At first glance, we could look at him and think he's just an ordinary human being walking around, living among us. I mean, he looks human. He has a face. There's no feature of his body that, on appearance, doesn't look human. But no, is Superman human? Of course not, according to all the comic books and the movies. He's not human. He's Kryptonian. He's from another planet, as the old theme said. He's a strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. But he's from a planet called Krypton. And so, although strangely enough, he looks human in every way, according to his makeup, his being is totally different. It just looks human. But now he has an alternate identity, that by the name of Clark Kent. Now, Clark Kent sounds like a human name. And is Clark Kent human? Let's ask that question. Well, according to identity, as everyone thinks, Clark Kent is human. He is the son of Mr. and Mrs. Kent. And he grew up in a farm in Kansas, and he works for the Daily Planet newspaper. And so everyone thinks that Clark Kent, walking among them and eating and drinking and driving to work, is a human being. And they have no reason not to unless he reveals that he's not a human being. Everyone thinks he's a human being. So is Clark Kent, as opposed to Superman, a human being? Well, of course not. Clark Kent is Superman. He's just an alternate identity. And he's a Kryptonian in disguise. He's trying to make you think He's a human being by that identity of Clark Kent. But Clark Kent is not a human being. He just looks like one. So, is Jesus like Superman? Well, Jesus didn't come from another planet, but Christians acknowledge that Jesus pre-existed as incarnation and came from heaven somehow. So is that like Superman? Does that mean that Jesus is kind of like an alien from another planet? Well, let's investigate that a little bit. Because there were people in history, and in fact, even people today can get a little confused and think that Jesus really is kind of like Superman. In the way that they understand what the Bible teaches about Jesus, they think Jesus is a lot like Superman. And there are people today, yes, that think this way. But actually, in history, in the early church period, there were quite a few people who did think that Jesus was like Superman. Now, obviously, Superman, the superhero, was invented in the 20th century. But the idea of Jesus being kind of like an alien from another planet and looking human, but not really being human and having superpowers was not foreign to the early church. In fact, it's one of the earliest ideas about Jesus that he really was kind of like a superman. And because people have a strong desire to think of Jesus this way, someone who can rescue them and someone who can protect them and someone who can really take them under his wing and then show them how to make themselves into their own version of Superman. Now, although Superman is really cool if you're into Superman and that kind of really uber-powerful superhero, Superman could never be for us what we need for our Savior, according to the teachings of the Bible. Superman could rescue us from some calamities. Superman could beat up some bad guys, and that would be fun. But Superman could never save us from from the due penalty of our sins, which is what we need in a Savior and what Jesus Christ provided for us. This is how Jesus became our superhero. But unlike Superman, Jesus is not an alien from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities via our red sun. So, I did mention earlier that there were people at the beginning of the church age, during the time of the early church, that believed that Jesus was kind of like Superman. So, what is this? What am I talking about? So, one of the earliest heresies that people had to deal with in the church and outside the church was what is called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism and all, there were quite a few sects of Gnosticism that developed over the first few centuries of the early church. And during the time when the scriptures were written, we have what we call proto-Gnostics or the kind of the first Gnostics that were developing their teachings. Now, Gnosticism was kind of this idea of secret knowledge. Basically, the word Gnosticism, or Gnostic means one who knows. And so the idea was that Gnostic religions were religions of helping people find secret wisdom or secret knowledge. Basically, the truth is here. And if you want to get to the truth and learn it for yourself, you have to join our group and we have to let you in and we have to initiate you in secret ways. And you have to figure out where the secret truth is hidden in various writings, such as the New Testament scriptures. And so, Gnosis, where Gnosticism comes from, means knowledge, And Gnosticism would basically take elements of various religions. If a religion started to become popular, the Gnostics would kind of cannibalize that faith. They didn't just fight it, they would claim that they were members of that religion. So, the Gnostics would claim to be Christians, and the Gnostics would take elements of the teachings of the scriptures, but they would twist those in ways that would promote their views, and basically, one of the primary teachings of Gnosticism was a dualism. Dualism was the idea that the physical realm, or the material realm, and the immaterial realm could not really coexist. Basically, the immaterial realm was perfect, or the highest realm achievable. This was where the ultimate God lived. And that the material realm was evil, or wicked, or tainted somehow. And so, unfortunately, us human beings lived in the material realm, and so that's why we were corrupted, and our bodies were evil. And so, to the Gnostics, the idea of salvation wasn't really substitutionary atonement or the death of Jesus. It was to attain unto a teaching that would help us escape our physical bodies. And so, if we could shed our materialism and our material bodies and somehow pass the tests after death to be able to enter into the purely spiritual or immaterial realm, that would be our ultimate deliverance and our salvation. And so you could see, although this is different from Christianity, it can be tempting sometimes for Christians to think like Gnostics because the Bible does say that sin has corrupted all of humanity. And we have the temptations of the flesh. We have the temptations of licentiousness, unfaithfulness to spouses. We have the temptations of our mind we have the temptations to indulge in things and harm our bodies and so you know sin and the devil tempts us and so we could then attribute that to be intrinsic to our flesh now the bible does not teach us the bible does not teach that the material world itself is evil by virtue of being material We as Christians believe that there was a curse when Adam and Eve fell in the garden and sin and death passed upon all as all have sinned. But that salvation is not found in escaping the material realm. Salvation is found in Jesus himself as the incarnate son of God taking on humanity and entering the material realm and redeeming the creation, In other words, God is going to make the material world perfect, and God is going to raise us in our material bodies, yes, glorify them, but that they're the same bodies that died, and that God will make the material world perfect and not corrupt, and that this is the ultimate goal. God did not create the material world by mistake, nor was there some evil demigod who created the world to spite the perfect good God, as Gnostic teachings would believe. And I would like to say to some especially evangelical Christians, we have to remember that the Bible doesn't teach that our ultimate fate is just Heaven or hell after death. I know we like to talk about that and the gospel just being either you go to heaven or go to hell, but that's not what eternity is. You don't just either go to heaven or hell, and that's eternity. We have the intermediate state, and our salvation is not just to become some disembodied spirit in heaven. Jesus Christ does return, and there is a resurrection, and we become redeemed and glorified fully with our bodies restored reconstructed redeemed and glorified and there's a new heaven a new earth that is material and so, that's Gnosticism. Now, part of the belief of Gnosticism, as, they would, as the Gnostics would identify Jesus, is what is called Docetism. And this is what I would like to address as we ask the question, is Jesus like Superman? And identify what Superman is like. So, what is Docetism as an aspect of Gnostic beliefs? Now, Docetism or Docetic comes from the verb in greek dokain, which means to seem so let's think about superman superman seemed to be human or clark kent seems to be human he looks human Perhaps, maybe if you touched his skin, it might feel human if you didn't try to pinch it to see if it's like how hard it is. If you just patted his shoulder, you might think that it's human and his face looks human. He doesn't have horns. He doesn't have a tail. He doesn't have wings or anything like that. He looks human in every respect. But as he is Superman... He only appears to be human. He seems to be human until he's fully revealed. And then you realize, oh, this is not a human being. He's a Kryptonian. And now docetism, which means the idea of Jesus just seeming to be human. It's the idea that Jesus only appeared to have a human body. So, Docetism is necessarily based on the Gnostic idea of dualism between the material and immaterial. Because to the Gnostics who adopted elements of Christianity into their religions, if Jesus was to be a good guy, if Jesus was to be a savior, he could not be human. Now, everything in the Bible, obviously, it mentions, you know, his brow, his head, his eyes, his hands, his feet. It mentions him dying on a cross and bleeding, so the Gnostics have to account for that, but... According to Gnostic teaching, Jesus only appeared or seemed to be human, because if Jesus were actually human in Docetism, then he could not be this perfect Savior. He could only be one of us corrupt, material humans. So, Docetism is based on this Gnostic idea of a dualism of material and immaterial. In other words, there are two realities that cannot ever be intermixed or even adjoined together. These two realities are the material and immaterial. Now, there isn't just one statement or one form of Docetism. There are actually several, and this is what makes Docetism dangerous, not only in the early church period, but as I will explain, even today. In fact, I myself, yours truly, Daniel Minnick, the host of Truth Espresso, have encountered Docetists. I have encountered various forms of this belief on Internet message boards. Now, I didn't go to docetist message boards looking for docetists to argue with docetists. No, I encountered them unexpectedly. I encountered them on boards, on message boards years ago when I was expecting that I would be talking with people of like faith. So, let me put this out here. Fundamentalist, evangelical, mainstream, denominational Christians are not immune to the infection of docetism. There are temptations to docetistic beliefs that we must fight, we must be vigilant about, and we must be aware that they exist and detect them. We must be aware when we are tempted to think this way, and you might think, look, well, I I don't believe Jesus is some alien from another planet. But as we look into these, you can test your ideas about Jesus and see if you've ever been tempted to think this way. Now, if you find yourself having fallen into some of these traps, don't get alarmed. I'm not going to call you a heretic It's just information to help us to refine our faith to be aware of these things. As I've heard a Christian apologist, a Trinitarian Christian apologist named Fred Sanders, explain as he's taught about the idea of who Jesus is, according to Christian orthodoxy, he will say, No one is an intentional heretic. If you've ignorantly or accidentally tossed around the ideas of some of these heresies, don't be afraid that you're some hell-bound evil heretic. No one is ignorantly a heretic. But let's look at some examples of Docetism as I'm going to define them, and I will explain at least two of these that I have encountered myself and go into more depth on two of these three ideas. But we're going to look at three forms of Docetism. The first one is more historic. Now, the first uh, expression of docetism is what I call the phantom theory. So, the phantom theory of Jesus, this particular flavor of docetism, is one that was more expressed in early church history. It's the idea that Jesus did not actually have a physical body. Jesus was some kind of spirit creature, spirit demigod, who would either materialize periodically or only be visibly human. You know, he would hang out with his disciples, they would see a human being. But if somehow they were able to get a human being detector device, it would not beep by Jesus. And, as I mentioned, Gnosticism during the early church period, as the early church fathers and the early church writers had to contend for the faith of the identity of Jesus Christ, they had to battle mostly Gnosticism for the first several hundred years. Because the Gnostics were very sly, they were very tricky, they posed themselves as Christians and acted like they were just arguing nuances. But the Gnostics believed that Jesus was not truly human. And a strong idea at this time was the phantom theory that Jesus looked human. And if he allowed people to touch him, it seemed to them that they were feeling a human being. But Jesus was not really a human being. He was a phantom. He was a spirit who would materialize as needed. And the Gnostics also wrote their own accounts and their own gospels. You know, there's quite a few Gnostic gospels. There's the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, and so on and so forth. But one of these Gnostic writings is called the Acts of John. And I want to read one little statement from here. So you get the idea of the phantom theory. So from the Acts of John, as translated from the Greek in verse 93, it says, And oftentimes when I walked with him... Referring to Jesus, I desired to see the print of his foot, you know, in the sand, whether it appeared on the earth. For I saw him as it were lifting himself up from the earth, and I never saw it. Unquote. So he's referring to footprints. Jesus was walking with him in the sand. And then, I desired to see his footprints in the sand, but I never saw footprints. So, Jesus was not truly human. When he walked in the sand, he wouldn't leave footprints, but he looked human. Perhaps, if Jesus allowed him to touch him, he would feel human by Jesus somehow materializing it to be so or affecting your senses. But Jesus wasn't human enough to leave footprints. He was a spirit. He was a phantom. He was a phantasm. And this is because of the idea that if Jesus were a human being, he would be, like us, corrupted by the material world and could thence not be our Messiah and not show us the way to heaven. But obviously, that would raise the question, what happened on the cross? Well, that too was an illusion, according to Docetism. He wasn't really a human being dying there. He was just allowing people to play with a manifestation that and it looked like he was bleeding and it looked like he was dying, but it was really a phantasm putting on a an illusion. It was smoke and mirrors because he couldn't be truly human, dying for our sins, whatever that means, according to Gnosticism. So in Gnosticism you tru- and Docetism, you truly cannot have a human dying for the sins of other human. In fact, it wasn't really the death of Jesus that they, met, they care about. That was just an illusion. What they care about are his teachings, or rather trying to find hidden meanings in his teachings that only a Gnostic could discover reading between the lines. And then if you apply that to yourself and you deny the pleasures of the physical world and somehow make yourself one with the immaterial world, then once you die, you can shed that corrupted physical body and attain spiritual enlightenment. So, this is the phantom theory, and as I said, this is the most common in early church history. But, I dare say that there are forms of docetism that are actually more common today. The second flavor of docetism that I'd like to address is one that I myself have encountered. And this is the one that I call the alien body theory. I encountered this one on a Baptist message board. One of the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. But in this alien body theory, the idea of the virgin birth took on far more than was necessary in what we see in Scripture. In this alien body theory, Jesus was not truly human, even though he actually did have a body— And he looked, felt, and acted human in every way. So this form of docetism is different from the phantom theory. Jesus actually did have a body at all times, and it looked, felt, and acted human in every way. So you might do the duck test. If it quacks like a duck, and waddles like a duck, and flies like a duck, and swims like a duck, couldn't you say it's a duck? Well, obviously not to this form of docetism. It can seem to carry all the attributes of something, but not really truly be it. And in the alien body theory, the virgin birth was necessary as a means for Mary to conceive and give birth to a human-like alien via the Holy Spirit. Well, why was Jesus not really human, but just like a human virtually? Well, because if he were actually human, as if you think like a Gnostic, he would be tainted by sin. And so, Jesus had to be an alien, as human-like as necessary, but not actually identified by the human species. Yes, this was on a Baptist message board, a fundamentalist, independent Baptist message board that I encountered. I encountered one member on that board who was discussing his thought-provoking ideas with other people. And he seemed fairly harmless, but some of the things he was saying was raising red flags in my mind. As I had my, is Jesus like Superman detector going on at the time. And what he was saying just didn't seem that off the wall at first. I mean, because after all, the term Baptist does seem to be a big tent these days. However, I started presenting some verses to test his ideas, such as Galatians 3.16 and Hebrews 2.16, that Jesus is clearly identified as the seed of Abraham and acts two twenty nine through thirty and romans one three and second timothy two eight that jesus was truly the seed of david and what that meant i mentioned to this individual that any passage that called jesus a man using the greek word anthropos proved that he was truly human and i got this person to admit that he essentially believed that mary gave birth to an alien He didn't seem to like that kind of exposure in that group. I explained that what he was teaching was a form of Gnosticism called Docetism. And soon other members of the board caught on and realized that this individual probably doesn't belong on that particular message board according to the rules of being on that message board. You had to be a Baptist and you had to agree to orthodox teachings. And this idea that Jesus was not truly human when you really test him and you really drill him with questions turned out to be a violation of the rules. And so that's the alien body theory. He truly had a body that seemed in all respects human, but you you just could not truly identify it as the human species because somehow that would taint him with sin. And that is the Gnostic dualism at work there, even in modern days and among seemingly fundamental independent Baptists. And now the third instance is a little more nuanced. The third flavor of docetism that I want to discuss is what I call the divine blood theory. Now, I encountered some people on a fundamentalist Baptist message board over a decade ago who held to the idea that Jesus had a human body in all respects. So, unlike the alien body theory and unlike the phantom theory, these people believe that Jesus was truly human, except for one little aspect, his blood. In this theory, the divine blood theory, sin is transmitted from father to child through blood somehow. You ever heard of the term bad blood? Well, this theory takes that phrase to a whole new level. Basically, blood in this theory is the central repository for our propensity to sin. Adam's blood became corrupted at the fall. And all of Adam's children inherit sin nature through inheriting corrupted blood. But you might ask, couldn't we get a blood transfusion and rid ourselves of sin? Well, not so fast, because the Bible says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so, our ability to live is hopelessly tied to our corrupted blood. So then, this is why the virgin birth was necessary. You see, although the virgin birth is a tenant of Orthodox Christianity, the Gnostics will latch on to this one and show that it proves their teaching. They take the virgin birth as even more necessary for their idea of distinguishing Jesus via the Incarnation from what we truly are as humans. So, according to the divine blood theory, for Christ not to inherit our corrupted blood, he needed to be born of a virgin. Makes sense, huh? And blood inheritance comes through the father, you see, not through the mother. So Jesus was therefore born of a virgin. But then you might ask, well, where did he get his blood? Supernaturally created by the Holy Spirit, of course. Makes sense, huh? Jesus had to have a special divine blood that didn't inherit our corruption and could wash away our sins. Thinking like a fundamentalist, you know, his blood washes away our sins. It's special blood. His pure divine blood was instrumental in protecting him from sin and not yielding to temptation. Well, there you go. Because he had special divine blood that didn't inherit the corruption, that's how he could be a new Adam and, not, and withstand temptation. Now, how does this divine blood cleanse us from sin? Well, you see, the death of Christ did not complete the atonement in this theory. You may think, well, in a sense, yes, because the resurrection completes it. Well, yes, but that's not what I mean in this divine blood theory. Yes, the death of Christ and the resurrection is important to the atonement in the divine blood theory. But according to the divine blood theory, even the resurrected Christ had not yet completed the atonement. Remember when Mary Magdalene saw him after his resurrection? And remember when Jesus told her, "'Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father.'" This statement of Jesus is a key statement for the divine blood theory and why the atonement was not yet complete. Jesus somehow had some or all of his actual blood on hand, you see. You might wonder why didn't anyone report that the cross was mysteriously missing the blood that should have stained on it. (laughs) Yeah, questions like that need not be asked. And the fact that Mary Magdalene didn't ask about a vial of blood that should have been visible or something of the kind isn't a question to ask either. We are just supposed to know that when Jesus said, don't touch me, it was because he was carrying his blood somehow with him after his resurrection, and this blood had to stay clean and pure. If Mary touched him, she could defile the blood and its power to wash away sins would be undone. (gasps) Why would this be? Didn't the cleansing happen in his death on the cross? Not according to the divine blood theory. Although Christ's death was vitally important to the atonement, in another respect, it was instrumental to shed out his blood so that the blood can be applied. Because when Jesus said, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, he was warning Mary Magdalene here that the atonement would be complete after he ascended to his Father. When Jesus ascended to the Father in heaven, he took his literal physical blood that was once on the cross of Calvary and applied it to a literal mercy seat on a literal altar in heaven. Now, because according to Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, the tabernacle was a shadow of things in heaven. And therefore, the structure of the tabernacle in Exodus and all the components inside that tabernacle have to mirror literal components in heaven, including an altar and a mercy seat. And the atonement was not complete until Christ, as high priest, literally sprinkled his literal physical blood on that literal mercy seat in heaven. That is when our sins were finally cleansed. That is when the blood of Christ was finally applied to our accounts. And so, if Mary Magdalene touched Jesus before he ascended to his father, she could have defiled that process. Hey, I'm not making this up. I have encountered these people, and these were people who claimed to be fundamentalist independent Baptists. So why would this be considered a form or a flavour of docetism? Well, If you believe that the blood that Jesus possessed was not human blood, not literally human blood, but had some kind of divine component to it, then you're denying an element of the humanity of Jesus and therefore making him not truly 100% human. Because the orthodox idea of Jesus, of the incarnation of the Son of God, is that he's the Son, the second person of the Trinity, fully divine and fully human. So, therefore, his human nature had to be 100% human, and his divine nature has to be 100% divine. So, we say Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. But if you deny even one component of that, even just his blood, this is docetism. Now, here is another example besides my narrating to you what I have experienced myself. Here's an article written in the year 2000 entitled, What's All the Controversy About John MacArthur and the Blood of Christ? by a certain Phil Johnson that you might have heard of. And so, in this article, Phil Johnson talks about a controversy within Baptist fundamentalism that even gets into docetistic territory. Now, I have encountered people who have gotten caught up in this controversy and and that they have joined the bandwagon to grill Dr. MacArthur on his alleged position on the blood of Christ. Thankfully, many have simply been misinformed, but others have their own agenda. So what is this controversy? Well, in 1976, Dr. John MacArthur had a QA and a session, as he often does in his Grace to You program. So way back in 1976. Now, in 1986, uh, Bob Jones Jr. kind of dug up this he he read this and he saw some comments that kind of shocked him and so he wrote something in 1986 that began a controversy over what dr john macarthur explained in this qa session 10 years earlier so what was the controversy what did john macarthur say Well, John MacArthur was simply trying to explain the role of Christ's blood in the atonement to answer some questions. He was trying to explain that the blood itself that Jesus shed didn't heal in and of itself except that it was shed in his death. Now, Bob Jones Jr. misunderstood what John MacArthur was communicating and claimed that he was denying the efficacy of the blood of Christ and called it heresy. What was MacArthur saying when he said it's not just the blood, but that he shed it in death? MacArthur meant that Jesus could not just cut his skin and squeeze out blood to pay for sins. That there is no property in the blood itself that's like some magic elixir. The atonement comes from his blood in that he shed it out in his death. The atonement is substitutionary via death, not via his blood as some kind of potion for a ritual. MacArthur clearly said, quote, We are saved by his substitutionary death for us, not by the chemicals in his blood. Unquote. So, a bloody death was indeed necessary. Yes, both parts are equally important, the blood and the death. But neither do anything without the other. And that's the point that MacArthur was making in his Q&A session way back in 1976. The point is that the atonement is not based on special physical makeup of the blood of Jesus itself. Yet some so-called fundamentalists haven't latched on to this controversy merely by misunderstanding what MacArthur was saying. They really do have a specific doctrine to defend that MacArthur's words would deny to them the, that particular doctrine. They really do believe in some kind of divine blood theory. And they really believe that the blood itself carries within its physical properties a healing or cleansing mechanism, and that it must be applied to a literal altar or a literal mercy seat in heaven to complete the atonement. And in this idea, anything less than this is heresy for these fundamentalists. But the problem with this idea is that whether the proponent of this divine blood theory realizes it or not, they are essentially denying a fundamental tenet of christian fundamentalism which is substitutionary atonement and you can't have a substitute that isn't the same as what is being substituted for that's part of the nature of substitutionary atonement because as hebrews 10 4 says for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin and verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no, had no pleasure. So, this is saying that the blood of animals could not take away sin as was the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The only thing that could take away sin is one who had a full body, a human body. And as I mentioned to the the person who held to the alien theory of docetism, that Jesus had to be truly the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, and anywhere that the Bible refers to him as anthropos or man, it truly is man, not someone who's like man, not someone who's 99% human. But to be a substitute, he has to be 100% human. And so, to deny any aspect of humanity to Jesus Christ is to dabble in docetism. I don't care if you hold to the blood of Christ as precious. Indeed, it is. And I'm not saying that I'm a fanboy of John MacArthur. There's a lot that he teaches that's good, and I don't agree with him on everything he says, but I believe he's orthodox. But to hold to the superstitious idea that the blood of Christ itself has some kind of intrinsic properties in it as a liquid that must be applied somehow to complete the atonement is, I would say, heresy because it denies the substitutionary atonement of the death of Christ. Yes, he had to shed his blood in death, and yes, his blood is precious, but you don't deny this atoning work of the death of Christ on the cross. When Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished, it was indeed finished. It wasn't just that the death of Christ was finished so that he can get out his blood, Blood, And so that somehow the blood itself has to be applied on a literal altar in some kind of ritual to make atonement work. No, you deny the substitutionary nature of his death, the act of the death of Christ on the cross itself must be the substitution to pay for sins. Sin isn't paid by sprinkling blood on an altar. Sin is paid for by the capital punishment that Christ endured by his blood and by bearing the penalty of sins on himself, not by a ritual. And so those were the three forms of docetism. I'm sure there are plenty other forms. So, we discussed the phantom theory, the alien body theory, and then the divine blood theory. So, Christians, evangelical Christians, fundamentalist Christians, beware of the temptations of docetism. Docetism is still around today in many forms, and it can creep up where you don't expect it. So, what is the problem with docetism? It denies substitutionary atonement, as I've explained. And just as a heads up, whenever I ask the question, what's the problem with whatever particular heresy about Jesus throughout church history that still continues to this day, the answer is always going to be, it denies substitutionary atonement. So prepare for it. What is the problem with Docetism? It denies substitutionary atonement. What is the problem with Arianism and Apollinarianism and Eutychianism and Nestorianism and all these other ones that we're going to get into as we discuss superheroes? The answer is always going to be, it denies substitutionary atonement. Because substitutionary atonement is the most important aspect of the Christian faith and what distinguishes Christianity from all of the world's religions. So, an alien creature cannot be our substitute, according to Isaiah 53.5 and 1 Peter 3.18 and Romans 5.6 and Hebrews 9.28, among other scriptures. Another problem with Docetism, in that it denies substitutionary atonement, is that it also denies eschatology because an alien creature cannot sit on the throne of David. Acts 2.30 says, Therefore, being a prophet, referring to David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So David did not, through his descendants, give birth to an alien. It was the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh. And Luke one thirty two, it says, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. His father David. An alien doesn't have as a father David. And the Bible, especially in the first epistle of John, dealt with the proto-Gnostics, as I mentioned earlier, and these verses are clearly against Docetism. First John chapter 4, and verses 2 and 3 say, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. Yes, The spirit of Gnosticism and Docetism is the spirit of Antichrist denying that Jesus came in the flesh and by what John meant is by come in the flesh means had a full human nature, was truly human in that respect. 2 John 1.7 says, For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Do you think Gnosticism and Docetism were important to John? And as I said, in the flesh doesn't just mean that Jesus came with some form of tangible component. It means that he was truly human. So, my advice to us Christians, when we think about who Jesus Christ is, we need to be careful that we don't concentrate so much on what makes Jesus unique that we sacrifice what makes him like us in his humanity. We need to be careful that we don't focus so much on his divinity that we sacrifice all or part of his humanity. Yes, I know, when we encounter those Jehovah's Witnesses, we are so ready to prove that he's God, and we will get into that, because there are other heresies that we need to deal with. Yes, it is important to prove the divinity of Jesus Christ, but that's not all there is to Jesus Christ. If all you focus on is the divinity of Jesus Christ, and not also and equally his humanity, you can fall into the temptation of docetism and Gnosticism we need to avoid the temptation to treat Jesus like Superman Jesus was not an alien he was fully human he didn't just look he did not just appear to be human he truly was human and the reason this is important is that precious Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement because if Jesus were like Superman we could not have substitutionary atonement so i would like to say thank god that Jesus is not like Superman